0: Hello, this is Father David Nix on the Padre Peregrino podcast. This is TCE number 38, Theology and Current Events. I'm so happy to be joined today by one of my most distinguished guests ever, Dr. Mark McDonald, MD. Dr. McDonald, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Father David Nix, lovely. I'm going to give a little uh, CV for the audience out there. Uh, Dr. McDonald was born and raised in Los Angeles. Graduated from UC Berkeley before attending medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He was trained in both adult and child and adolescent psychiatry at UCLA. Now he works primarily with children in private practice in West Los Angeles. Dr. McDonald has lived and worked in Europe, Asia, and Central America. His his opinions on topics such as the need to reopen America's schools and the pandemic of fear in the United States today have been widely published in local and national news, including the Wall Street Journal and the Federalist. Dr. McDonald has been on Tucker Carlson, and he has also been in the roundtable discussion with Florida Governor DeSantis on mandatory mask wearing. Again, um, Dr. McDonald, thanks for coming on today. And I just finished your book not too long ago here. I'm holding it up for uh, any of the video people called United States of Fear. One of the things you go through in your book is they've kind of been greasing the rails for a while to get us to enter a period of totalitarian takeover. Um, You you point out the Cold War fear, the uh, climate change fear. you. You point out that for a while they've been kind of ramping us up to live in fear. But why did they finally get a foothold on this virus if they couldn't exactly get a full foothold on the um, Cold War fear, the nuclear war fear, the climate change fear? How did they finally get a foothold with this virus?
1: Well, a lot of people will believe and will argue that there's a, a massive global conspiracy afoot. Uh, I'm not denying that, but I'm certainly not, um, I'm agnostic, let's put it that way. I don't really know. What I do know though, is that regardless of how much conscious effort and thoughtfulness went into the creation of this virus and its release, and I'm sure that there's evidence to support that it, it was conscious and probably intentionally released, but I can't prove that. Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, I think that the evidence is overwhelming that if not a conspiracy, certainly a confluence of opportunism occurred in the spring of 2020. And the opportunism was seen by people in government, by media and by large corporations, both in the United States and abroad. The opportunity was there is a virus that is apparently killing older sick people and it's moving around the world very, very quickly. And we're not really sure what it is, and we're not really sure how to treat it, and we're not really sure uh, how susceptible the larger population is going to be in six months to 12 months. And those three groups of people, the corporations, the media, and the politicians, I believe saw an opportunity to inflame fear, and it was rational at the beginning, what should be concerned and afraid, but inflame that fear, fan it to such an extent that it would paralyze the population, not just in the U.S., but at every, essentially every Western country, every established country in the world. And in that state of paralysis, it was driven by fear. They would be able to step in and do what they have been trying to do with some degree of success, but not, not entirely the last 40 or 50 years. And that is take over our economy, take over our voting, meaning establish a permanent position of power just like Zhang Xiaoping is doing in uh, in China right now. Actually uh, General Xi, <laughs> I keep getting them confused, he was the previous one, previous dictator, but Xi has done as the permanent chairman in China. And also take over our culture, redefine our culture as one that is not an individualistic, family-oriented, God-loving, and civic institution-supporting community-based country, but rather one of individuals all dependent upon the higher power of government and all working and being supported by either government institutions or large corporations. So I don't see this as a conspiracy, I see this as the culmination of a practice that had been going on for decades and decades and the, the tipping point, the, the catalyst would be a better word for how they were able to accomplish this so much so quickly was harnessing the fear that it came from the virus. I think that is the key to everything. Without the fear, they would not have been able to accomplish so much with such a, a, in such a short a period of time. I agree. And you were very bold in your book, the fact that you talked about the complementarity
0: of men and women on how they balance each other in different types of fear. Um, you know, as a paramedic one, paramedic and priest, one of the things I noticed is usually men keep a cooler head at level one out of nine emergency. And then for some reason, at 10 out of 10, it kind of flips and women uh, keep their head a little bit better than men. Um, but in your book, you really talk about the balance Let's talk real quickly about the, the positive balance between men and women. What, are, what do women need men for and what do men need women for? And then we'll kind of dovetail that into the topic of fear and control with the government.
1: So this is a subject uh, and a, a point of truth, eternal truth, that I think has been lost uh, under the the oatmeal of, of redefining uh, terms and words and language and uh, value systems that is, is so confused now that the people, especially young people, don't even really know what end is up. Men and women are fundamentally different. No matter what you're told today in the media, no matter how you're uh, given this ridiculous false redefinition of genderlessness, that men and women are all just sort of neutral beings on a, um, an axis that goes from you know negative to positive and we're all just at a zero point. The reality is that women are inherently more emotionally driven. They react more emotionally. They're more emotionally connected to other people. And I'm speaking in generalities, obviously there's exceptions with individual humans, but just as a sex, that's what they are. And this is biologically determined because they need to bond very quickly and very strongly with children, with babies, infants. And this is necessary for the survival of the infant and also for the growth and development of the relationship uh, with the mother. That's the reason for it. Uh, It also allows for better nurturing. It allows for more empathic connection uh, with family. Um, They provide um, a a femininity and, and femininity is not, is not weakness. Femininity is incredibly strong. That is, um, infused within the, fe- the female sex men on their on their hand other hand uh, in their view they are inherently biologically determined to be leaders to express courage to take risks to leave the home and bring back something of value whether it's food or money they are meant to remain reasonably calm in stressful situations so that they can make cold but critically necessary decisions to help protect the sanctity of not just themselves but also their wife and children, the family, the household. They are also there, relationally speaking, to provide containment for the woman in their life's tendency towards hyper-emotionality, to rein that in when it gets a little bit too much. That's why the man is there. Now, we can when we have often said that, you know, the role of, of women is to try to help civilized men contain their hypersexuality, their hyperaggression. All right, fine. I'll grant you that. But what do women need? You know, don't women need help as well? Are they just born pure? They're born uh, without any original sexual sin, meaning sin of being a woman? No, of course not. Uh, women also have their weaknesses. Uh, women need men to help contain their emotionality. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's actually good that both men and women need one another because of their different complementary strengths and weaknesses. This is this is completely natural. It's not misogynistic or patriarchal to suggest this. Uh, it's just a recognition of reality. And we've forgotten this um, because we have um, really just attacked both sexes terribly and and neutered them in, into nothing. So so it is important to. Start from reality and truth and biological and cultural history that men and women are different. They offer different strengths and weaknesses, and they do need one another. And one of the things I really like that you say about men is they're really supposed to be able
0: uh, to exercise leadership and boundaries. Those are two things you mentioned in your book, United States of Fear. Um, Men failing at leadership and boundaries. You're a uh, family psychiatrist out there in Los Angeles. How has this played into the masks and the fear, um, just the, uh, the paranoia that you've seen
1: sneak into family life? Men have been sliding away from responsibility and masculinity, both as individuals and as fathers and husbands, for a long time. And this has led them to now, during the epidemic, during the pandemic, to fall prey to these Um, government instructions and and mandates to back away from their role as being the protector of the family. They have become essentially cowards. Uh, I've even said, as I speak at churches up and down California, that men have really become eunuchs. Uh, They have become emasculated. Uh, They do not have any uh, inherent expression of courage, protection, risk-taking that they need to express uh, in order to be good men, good husbands, good fathers. So what I see in my practice is these vibrating, hyper-histrionic, hysterical women coming to me saying, I don't know what to do. I feel scared. I feel unsafe. There's no one around to help me. You know, my husband is sitting around watching CNN in a mask all day long, and he's insisting that we put them on our children. And I just, I have to do it because I don't know what else to do. They take their leadership cues from their their husband, from, from the father of the family. Uh, And they're not getting any leadership anymore. The husband is laying down uh, and just giving in to the fear porn. And this has really, really been a problem with children who no longer have good modeling. They no longer know what it means to take a risk, to go outside, to be afraid, but to overcome it, to fail, but then to succeed later, to accept temporary pain, to pay a price. They see their father worshiping safety, and so they do the same thing. And they see their hysterical mother Uh, who can't actually manage her emotions anymore because the father isn't offering any sense of protection or containment. And you wind up with a whole family structure that's in disarray, anxiety, depression, bedwetting, violence, aggression, irritability, drug use, and ultimately, in the cases of two of my patients in the last couple of years, suicide or overdose by fentanyl. Because there's you, nobody at home on, to contain uh, one of the, I think I'm the
0: third Catholic to have you on. I heard you on Patrick Coffin and uh, Steve Cunningham. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you said before the scandemic, you didn't use that word. I use that word um, <laughs> before the scandemic, you had zero. This is, this isn't, you you weren't having um, all these overdoses and suicides.
1: Not one in over 10 years of practice. I did not have one death, one loss of life due to unnatural causes in my entire decade of, of private practice. And I've lost two young people, one under 18, one a little over 18 yeah. uh, in the last uh, 18 months uh, because specifically, directly caused by the government response to this pandemic and the taking away of schools and the neutering of the father figure in the household who went along with it and didn't instill uh, the necessary strengths and, and courage and leadership uh, in, his, in his children. And I want to talk
0: a little bit um, in five or ten minutes just about the uh, the effects of the lockdown on psychology. But real quick on the topic of men and women, one of the things I noticed in your book is sometimes you'll challenge these men uh, who have wives who are just terrified wearing the mask and everything, and you'll say, you know something along the lines of, you know, maybe take some leadership here." And basically they say, "Well, I don't think that's the hill to die on.
1: Can you speak mm-hmm. to that at all? I think this is unfortunately um, a cultural toxin that's been uh, sprayed around and injected into uh, our entire society, and it's it's really infected male female relationships, which is that men do not feel secure in challenging women. They have equated challenging women, asserting themselves, as abuse, as misogyny, um, as violence words are violence if you tell a woman who's been babbling for 18 minutes you know you need to just close your mouth for a little bit and take a breath because i'm getting a little worked up and 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 overloaded with all of the 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 the, the verbal vomit that may be a very appropriate and helpful thing to say she may thank you and say, oh my God, I didn't realize I was just running my mouth. I'm actually feeling really stressed right now. And then he can offer something to her to help her calm down. Why don't we take a walk together? You want some tea? Maybe I can solve the problem that you're having, whatever it is. That's how they work together. But now men just lay back and they just allow this, they they sort of leave a vacuum in front of them. Uh, They leave a vacuum and the, the women jump into the vacuum to fill it. And because the men aren't pushing back against it, The result is that women feel um, unloved, um, insecure, unprotected, flailing around, and the men are, are depressed and frustrated and angry because they say, look, I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just letting her have her way. I'm agreeing with her. I'm supporting her. I'm being sensitive. I'm not criticizing her. I'm not calling her out. I'm not pointing out where she needs to step up because I wanna be a good guy. I wanna be a good man. I don't wanna be one of these rape culture uh, promoters. I don't want to be an abuser. I don't want to be violent. They've misunderstood that love is not about letting someone get away with everything. It's it, Love is a, as a parent is not telling your child, if you want to have ice cream, go and have it. If you want to sleep in, do what you want, take drugs. I'm just being sensitive. No, it's about laying down the law to some degree uh, with love, obviously. But that, that's what love is. It's, it's ensuring the, the, the fulfillment of one's potential. That's what C.S. Lewis said. And I think men have a role to play in allowing women to fulfill their potential, just as, just as women do. And they've been told recently, culturally, no, that's not your role anymore. Your role is just to stand by and back her up. That's it. And let her do whatever she wants. That is not the way to ensure uh, a good relationship with a woman. It's not in any way to ensure uh, that the woman is going to develop good character either. It's actually the opposite. One of the solutions you write
0: about is to let kids play freely. And, you know, I've been hearing from everyone from Jordan Peterson to an exorcist I know saying you have to let your kids take risks. Now, real quick, we're not talking free soloing or letting your kids drive at 200 miles an hour. So nobody sues the doctor or myself. This is just a little disclaimer here. Um, Tell us, though, about letting kids play freely in this pandemic of fear.
1: Well, this is one of the biggest casualties and the the earliest casualties to the pandemic of fear was the sequestration of children. Keeping them out of school, keeping them in their homes, preventing them from seeing their friends, uh, locking them away. Uh, The exact opposite of what you should be doing with the child. When you prevent your child from engaging with an environment outdoors with friends, you are blocking, actually physically blocking that child from developing and there's a development on all levels development of language skills development of perception of, of feelings and emotions by seeing other people's faces physical development uh, being able to move in an environment to run to fall to jump to play to catch balls the ability to uh, navigate more complex social interactions that require concessions requires you to win humbly and to lose um in, a, in a, a virtuous way. These are all things that you can't learn when you're alone in a home. And you certainly can't learn it by just being with your parents all day. It has to be tried and tested with your cohort, with people that are your age, people that are going to give you the appropriate feedback when you're doing the things that uh, that children do with one another. This was taken away from children and still is to a large degree for, for nearly two years. So The effect of this pandemic of fear on children by the government and then by the compliant parents who who naively and foolishly thought that they were protecting their children by locking them away in the house only to find out that their children are collapsing physically and psychologically and developmentally. In other words, that they, the parents were pawns in a a vertical transmission of abuse Hmm. is a terrible, horrible thing to have to acknowledge. But I do believe that if we are to right this ship, if if children are to ultimately grow and develop and, and rebuild relationships with their parents that are honest over time, the parents are going to have to acknowledge that they've been wrong and that they've hurt their children, not intentionally, but they have without intent abused their children because the kids are gonna realize it in five years, 10 years, 15 years. They're gonna realize it. And if their parents aren't willing to own up to it now, that's going to fracture their relationship in the future. Mom and dad, why on earth would you have allowed me to miss 2 years of school, force me to wear a mask, block me from going to graduation, Disneyland travel because you were scared? You were afraid? So now I was sacrificed? I was the child's sacrifice of your fear the adult. You were the adult. You were the one responsible for me. I was entrusted under your care, and you really let me down. And that's a very valid, valid criticism to make. So I think it's, it's, it's really important. It's incumbent upon parents now to recognize and acknowledge what they've done to kids, to step up and own up to it so that the children can then um, both accept their apologies, both um, allow the, the, the guilt and the shame to be washed away, and to then reforge a, a stronger bond later on. I agree, doctor. And um, I have a friend about my age, and she does a lot of counseling for teen
0: girls out on the East Coast. She doesn't have any degrees, but she's just so good at counseling. A lot of these girls come to her. And one of the things on the mask that she pointed out that I've never read in anything online or heard on all these podcasts, all these podcasts I'm listening to on this very topic, she said, you know, for these teen girls who frequently wear very immodest clothes and stuff, the classes, the boys and the girls around them, Only see them through the eyes of objectification, both the pretty ones and the not Mm. so pretty ones. And so she was explaining to me one of the things that the mask, or one of the reasons why the mask has led to so much teen depression, she believes, is because for the teen girl, and again, she's counseling a lot of depressed teen girls, um, and she's finding a major correlation between the mask and depression. She said, one of the main reasons is because at that age, especially with so much objectification, um, a teen girl's only personalization in the eyes of another via identity is her face so once you cover up Mm. her face in a very objectifying world you depersonalize the very last thing that a teen girl had as far as her relation to both the boys in her class and the girls in her class this was sort of the last bastion of of not being depersonalized was her face and now this is covered over um she doesn't have any degrees does that
1: sound sound right to you it's an interesting perspective. It's, it's, it's a different um, vantage point of seeing the same problem that I described in my book as the, the dehumanization, which of course has originated in the Islamic world, again, specifically adult women or post-pubertal women. They don't mask young girls. They don't mask men at all or boys. Um, mm. But when you dehumanize a woman by blocking her face, um, you take away her identity. And this is one of the reasons why in the United States, we have been so opposed to uh, niqabs and not so much hijabs, those cover the head, but yeah. certainly niqabs and, and, and uh, other, other facial and head coverings that block most of the face uh, for either sex because we recognize that it's dehumanizing and it's objectifying. Now, even, even without Islamic intervention, we have now put masks over both sexes of all ages, in under a year, indoors and outdoors. And some people are even wearing them at home or wearing them in the car. So this, this point that she's making that there has been an objectification over time of girls through their bodies that they could only push back against by demanding that their faces be the point of contact, the, 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 the connection point in an interpersonal interaction. That's a very interesting point because if you take the face away, now the emphasis returns back to the body again. And I have seen actually women walking around with bikinis or dolphin shorts or crop tops on, exposing most of their body with their faces completely covered which is a very odd thing to see. And it's sort of the, the, the intentional objectification by the woman That's of right. what this other woman is just describing as a kind of uh, a casualty of, of the girls that are being forced to wear the masks regardless.
0: And also on this topic, I mean, you as a child psychiatrist, I was talking to uh, some family um, or some friends who have uh, little kids and they were in a, um, they were in a, you know, they never mask their kids. A lot of the traditional Catholics, the traditional Catholics listen to this podcast would never mask their kids, but, um, they had to go to a regular pediatrician or something. And I can't remember if it was the dad of this family, the mom of the family, but, um, their little kid would looked around and appeared really frightened in this pediatrician's office to see all these adults without masks on. And I thought this person was exaggerating to me just because they knew I was kind of like anti-vax and anti-mask and stuff. But as I listened for it, they weren't, they weren't changing the story for me. They were saying that, no, don't you understand? I obviously I'm a priest. I don't have kids. I totally miss the fact that a two year old is actually not just afraid of a bunch of masked people, but it just doesn't gel in their cerebrum as how humans around them should should act um, or Mm -hmm. be, rather, not just act, how they should be. What does this do to a little kid who's looking around and sees a bunch of masked adults in the room?
1: Well, and I can tell you what the Brown University Department of Pediatrics found in October when they published a report studying the effects of environmental deprivation and masks on infants, those that were born after January of 2020 showed a 20 IQ point loss compared to those born before. The next month, they published a study with more than 1,000 children ages 0 to 5, and they found that due to social deprivation and masking, There was a 24% cognitive decline year over year between 2019 and 2020. This is an actual decline, not just an arrest of development, a drop of brain capacity. So we are literally making our kids stupid. Now, if you look at, let's say really young kids, I mean, just think about this. It's not that complicated, you don't have to have a degree to understand how this works. What do women naturally do with little, little babies? They put their face right up to the baby's face and they give these big, over-exaggerated expressions of smiling or anger or sadness. And they make exaggerated vocalizations, you know, words. Maybe they don't even mean anything. They just babble to the children. And the babies love this. They love seeing those faces up close, these almost caricatures of human emotion, because that's how babies learn what feelings are. That's how they learn how to recognize them. They uh, connect up with faces with feelings very, very early. Uh, visually, and one of the reasons why mothers have to be so close to the baby is that the baby's uh, gaze is fixed at about a foot foot and a half for quite a, a long time, at least a year or so. Babies don't really see much far away; they only see stuff that's up close. So, if if all they see is a blur, you know, a blurry face that's covered with a mask, and then up close they see just a giant mask and no facial expressions, uh, it it goes against their natural emotional and biological uh, developmental states. So. That's just with infants, just with the really, literally little ones. And then as you get higher, you know, toddlers and and uh, kids that are pre pubertal post there's all these other aspects that occur uh, that are, are frightening and scary uh, to having to see masks all day long. It affects different people, you know, different ways at different developmental stages. But for, for younger children to be exposed only to masks and not to see faces all day long um, creates a, a sense of... of of disconnection, of anxiety, of fear, of of confusion, uh, because it is not natural. It has never been natural for small children to be around erased faces of human beings. Never.
0: I can't even imagine what that's going to be like 20, 30, 40 years if we don't kick this whole thing. Um, For anyone just joining us, we are with Dr. Mark McDonald, author of United States of Fear. I love the subtitle how America fell victim to a mass delusional psychosis. I think you started calling it a couple of years ago, this pandemic of fear. I don't know if you've seen, um, some people are saying that the narrative is changing. I'm not as optimistic as the people who say the narrative is fully collapsing on the left, but it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you saw on, on I don't watch Bill Maher, but I, I do listen to um, some conservative talk radio that has pointed this out, that there was the former New York Times op-ed writer or, um, or editor her name is Barry Weiss. She's about my age. Yes, she was on she was on Bill Maher, and she talked about a quote pandemic of bureaucracy, pandemic of bureaucracy. And I heard this maybe a week or two ago, and I thought I'm going to have to ask Dr. McDonald about that because he's been calling it a pandemic of fear for a while. And now we have the left saying this um, on Bill Maher's uh, show, and her main complaint on this whole thing is all these kids dying of suicides and how the masks do nothing. And you could tell about half of Bill Maher's audience was clapping and maybe half of them were not. Um, Should we get our hope up on the left waking up on this stuff at this point, or is this just a a flash in the pan doctor?
1: Well, I'm gonna differentiate because I think this is very important to define terms. I'm gonna differentiate the left from liberals. Sure. The left is an evil force. Everything it touches, it destroys. There's no exception to this. The left is our enemy. Everyone that is not left should be anti-left. Great. When people say, what's your political orientation? I prefer to say I'm anti-left than to say I'm conservative or Republican or whatever. Because when you say you're conservative or Republican, there's this sour taste that gets into the minds of the Democrats or the liberals, because they think they associate that with something bad, something immoral, something racist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. What I want to reinforce in the minds of all Americans is that everyone that's not on the left is essentially united in their value systems. It is the left that is opposing everyone else. It is not conservatives that are the enemy of the liberals. It is the left. The left is the enemy of everyone because the left is a destructive evil force. So people like Barry Weiss, she's not left, she's liberal. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. She doesn't believe in segregated dormitories. She doesn't believe in uh, genderless uh, birth certificates that the AMA wants to propose. Uh, on children born um, without an M or an F after their their name, the left does. The left wants to destroy all distinctions. Yeah. Everything is just bland. It's a cult. It's a it's a communist system. It is an ideological abyss that leads to nothing but depravity, death, and and and, um, and emptiness. What I think is happening, I, I I feel this and I see it in Santa Monica, where I practice, in Los Angeles, where I live, is that liberals. Who have been historically naive and and weak, not bad people, but naive and weak because they have been supporting the left by voting for these these horrible people because they're so anti-conservative, they become definitionally pro-left. Yep. They're starting to wake up and they're starting to realize that the left is actually wrecking everyone's lives. That their tacit support by voting in these people is creating the bureaucracy that Barry Weiss mentions. It's creating the dependency on government that is at its core, I think, the ultimate end game of the left as we see it today in the United States. The end game is to render every individual dependent on the state. That's, that's what the left wants and, and not dependent in a benevolent way, dependent in an abusive way the way a child predator would find his victim to be dependent on him. It's not for the child's benefit, it's entirely for the benefit of the the child predator. The government has become a a giant abusive predator, really. And liberals are starting to wake up to this fact and they're starting to see, gosh, you know, we still don't like Republicans, we still don't like conservatives, we still think Donald Trump is the reason why my puppy died last week, But, (laughs) but we are really uncomfortable with putting masks on our children who aren't getting sick and dying of this virus. We are really uncomfortable with teaching racism in schools and calling it CRT. We are really uncomfortable with giving all of our choices, all of our liberties over to a power that has not been shown to be a good um, caretaker of of those liberties. And that's actually where I derive a lot of my optimism from. It's not that we're getting louder conservative voices. It's that there are cracks forming in the dike uh, that was holding back, um, you know, uh, the the rush towards freedom. And it's happening with, say, Santa Monica moms, single immigrant women who uh, have children in public schools who are getting government subsidies for food and rent, housing, and they think this is just great. It's all free. It's so wonderful. And now they're realizing that it comes with a price, that they're being chained to a government school. The school that they got for, quote unquote, free is now saying, you know what? Teachers unions are going to decide when and how your children go to school. Not you, mom. They're going to decide what's taught. They're going to decide whether your children have to wear N95 masks while they're playing soccer. They're going to decide whether they get shut down for 15 days, being sent home to Zoom school purgatory because one of the kids, friends, cousins, dogs, grandfathers, Sons tested asymptomatically positive two days ago when he was 16 feet apart from him at an ice cream party and now their son has to stay home her son has to stay home for 15 days and he's completely fine and they're starting to say, you know what this is not what I voted for. this is not liberalism this is this is despotism That's right That's why I think that we're starting to see these cracks. So I am not um, uh, I am not optimistic that conservatives and liberals will somehow start to, seeing kumbaya and come together, Republicans and Democrats will join together. What I am really, really optimistic about with evidence is that the liberal bloc that has supported this nonsense for so long is starting to see that the evil is not coming from the right. It's not coming from conservatives. It's actually coming from the the left that they have been supporting all these years. That's why I feel a little bit uh, pleased at what's happening this year. Doctor, I really appreciate that correction
0: or delineation between the left and liberals, because to be honest, the clip that I heard from Bill Maher's thing was not on Bill Maher's, but Dave Rubin's uh, podcast. And Dave Rubin is a gay married man, obviously, he's mm-hmm. a traditional Catholic priest. Him and I are going to very much disagree on, on uh, same-sex marriage and stuff. But reason I listened to him, and he describes himself as a classic liberal, is he's at least fighting for the last thing we have in this country, barely, which is First Amendment rights. So him on the Venn diagram, at least him and I overlap on that um, First mm-hmm. Amendment rights as far as, um, um, I mean, I think he he himself, Dave Rubin, finally just realized one day, exactly as you said, the left just destroys everything they touch, um, which you're right, that's different from being a classical liberal. Mm-hmm. And destruction isn't an exaggeration. I remember when this first started, I mean, I thought I thought maybe it was March of 2020 for about two weeks. I thought this whole thing was going big. And then after a month of looking at the data, I was pre-med at Boston college after looking a month at the data. I thought something else is behind this, you know, um, it was probably April or may Milwaukee EMS reported a 50% increase in suicide and an 80% increase in overdoses. And then reading your book, I see very similar numbers. Um, is there any doubt at this point that this lockdown um, is not one of the most destructive things? And, and I know you you focus primarily on the United States, but what's so shocking to me is they succeeded in locking down seven continents. What is going to be the toll if just two months into this, Milwaukee MS reports a 50% increase in suicide, 80% increase in overdoses, um, and now we're two years into this and we don't really see the end of it. I know this is an impossible question for you to answer, but where are we going with all of this?
1: Well, you know, Johns Hopkins just published a meta-analysis including I think it was 18,000 studies of uh, damage or benefit caused by lockdowns in the United States. And they found that there was a, at best a 0.2% benefit in terms of uh, uh, saving, saving of lives and that every other uh, number came back negative. That this lockdown has been essentially one giant swath of destruction okay. in the last eighteen months, uh, and they, they, this is not just one man's opinion. This is literally a meta-analysis of thousands and thousands of studies. And this is from Johns Hopkins, which was yes. very much for vaccine,
0: very much for the lockdown. Yes,
1: mm-hmm. correct. This is not uh, you know a right-wing think tank. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just like Brown University Department of Pediatrics, which I quoted earlier, they are they are probably one of the most truly left-wing organizations uh, in in the the Atlantic Seaboard University system. So um, it is not debatable, if you are being intellectually honest, that these lockdowns have been utterly destructive with no significant benefit. I would even argue no benefit at all. I think that the way that we're gonna change this in the course of the world is for the United States to come out as a leader in reversing lockdowns and acknowledging the harm. If the United States can um, be retaken by the rational, and that requires liberals, it, it's not just conservatives, but liberals to start to become um, rational. Again, I think we can lead the way to reforming the rest of the world because there's, there's hope There's uh, seeds, there's glimmers of little fires brewing around the world in communities that are also rational and also democratic and pro-freedom, but they don't have enough power by themselves because their countries are too um, top-down oriented. They don't have states. Uh, We have states. So uh, that's probably the only reason why we're still around right now after the last two years is we have a constitution which allows us to have states. And of course, we have guns. Uh, Australia doesn't have either. There's no constitution. There's no guns. That's why they become a prison state. So we can lead the way. Um, And I think that if we can overcome this inertia, if we can just shift just enough to pivot towards something that's rational, something that is uh, truly uh, honest, then I think the rest of the world will follow. I really do, because I think they're primed as well in most countries, maybe not Australia, but certainly others. If we don't, uh, I don't believe there is any other country in the world that can take that place and that can become a leader right now. And I think what will happen is the vacuum that will be filled will be filled by a country that is truly nefarious, such as China. Yeah. And then I think we're, then I think we're done, really, for the next generation. I think we would be done. Um, and I do want to end on a
0: good note, but we're not quite at the end. Uh, so a little pushback on that. I mentioned Dave Rubin earlier. You know, he's he's looking at all the evidence on the vaccines, the lockdowns, the masks, all this stuff and he pointed out how many people though look at the evidence and will not convert. He said kind of how did he put it? He said getting people who are looking at the evidence to really convert to even believe in the truth before we even get to religious truth just even scientific truth. He said it's a very interesting term he used. He called it deprogramming from a cult. It's like it's like deprogramming someone from a cult. If these totalitarians have succeeded in this mass delusional psychosis, do we have any hope at even all the data making
1: a difference in the minds of people? I think that I would make the following distinction. Those who are brainwashed right now are inaccessible, just like cult members. Yep. However, there are those who are afraid, but they're weary, they're curious, they're wondering about whether there's another way, they just don't know how to get there, they just need guidance. They need mentorship. They need an AA program, just like the book that I'm writing now, which is Freedom from Fear, a 12-step program to individual and national recovery modeled after AA, as well as Jordan B. Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Wow. Those people we can save. Okay. And hopefully, then the people who are brainwashed will voluntarily release themselves from the grip of the guru. They'll leave the compound. Okay. But there's nothing that we can do for them. Right now, because just like an addict who hasn't accepted that he's lost control and that he's harming himself with the alcohol, there's no way that you can save an addict from himself. He has to be the one to take the first step. That is the first step of the twelve steps, huh?
0: Correct. Yeah, I knew. Exactly. I knew I wanted to invite you on the podcast when I heard you say on that South Africa, I think it was germ warfare, when you said it's impossible to control a society that is joyful and fearless. When you said that, I thought <laughs> I have to. I have to track Doctor McDonald down and see if he would do that because. Um, that's what Catholicism used to be traditional Catholic. I mean, people talk about the inquisition stuff, but it was, it was freedom. And so when you said joyful and fearless, I thought that that is our, it's truly our only chance at bucking a whole system of mass delusional psychosis. Um, yes. so for the listeners out there, again, this is uh, United States of fear, uh, by Dr. Mark McDonald, one of the very most important books that I've read, um, in the past five years, you can probably read it in three or four hours. And uh, it's well-sourced. Uh, I remember the Brown the brown example that you gave in there uh, is also in your book, if I remember correctly. Yes. So, um, you know, he's sourcing it with uh, hostile witnesses, we could call them, in this book. Dr. McDonald, thank you so much for joining us and uh,
1: speaking to the uh, Catholic world today. Thank you. If anyone wants to read more about my writing, you can find me at dissidentmd.com. Dissidentmd.com. God bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you.